This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical or legal advice. Always follow your local policies, procedures, and protocols when functioning in your respective profession. Additionally, the views expressed by the speakers and owners of this podcast are their own and do not represent the views of their respective employers. Listener discretion is advised. Alert Medic 1 response. Ken, Josh, and Mustafa here. Welcome back to the Alert Medic 1 podcast. Uh, it, it is already done. Oh, that's cool. Well, John, thanks for uh, joining the show. Why don't you uh, introduce yourself for us, and then we'll get started. So uh, thanks for having me. My name's John uh, Brashears. I'm a critical care paramedic in uh, Hamilton County, Tennessee. Um, I've been doing forms of EMS kind of off and on for the past 12 years. Um, I got my initial uh, introduction to the field in Northern Virginia. Um, in 2012, uh, following uh, some time in the U.S. Marine Corps, um, and then that didn't last a whole long. I felt I needed to come home, so I moved back down to Southeast Tennessee. Um, got in college uh, and worked for a few of the private services down here. Um, didn't much care for that, um, so when I was done with uh, school, I went back to school uh, because I was not nationally registered like a smart person had to start all the way from the beginning mm. um, and then worked for Hamilton County EMS and Hamilton County and greater Chattanooga from uh, 2017 to 2022. Um, I ended up leaving for a multitude of reasons, um, which I'm sure we'll get into um, as part of the subject of the conversation. And now I work for Erlinger Health System um, in their emergency departments as a critical care paramedic. We should probably talk about how I even like started interacting with you. So I Googled, uh, so I was interested in a new stethoscope. And uh, for those of you <laughs> watching, this Echo 500 came up as one of the uh, ones to use. Or the, I don't know, not use, but like it, I was like looking for reviews and uh, a Reddit post came up. And uh, long story short, I was go reading through the th- like the different posts or I guess the different, I don't know what you call them uh yeah posts reviews review uh what what do you call it's like a what's the subreddit of a subreddit a uh, subreddit yeah sure a sub subreddit and a deep, uh, a deep dark hole yeah and uh i feel i feel like you posted something you had post and this was months ago this was forever ago you had posted this uh, about it's something about your ems system or something i don't know uh and then i like responded to you and then long story short we started talking um and then uh here we are and i think one of the topics we we should certainly cover today and i think it's good as topic as i need to talk about is um just like the differences in systems like what we're used to uh you know here in maryland versus what even what we talked yeah. about in our short time on the phone uh so can you describe mm-hmm. uh first uh maybe just describe the ems system in tennessee and just uh some nuances that folks may not you know be aware of sure so in tennessee obviously um you know there is the state level medical direction that comes with, with state protocols um and then it's it's very um variable as you move throughout the state. Um, so you do have 
big metropolitan systems, for instance, Nashville, uh, in my understanding, uh, EMS and fire is under the same roof. Um, but if you go out more into the rural counties, um, you may have EMS and fire under the same roof with a volunteer service. Um, there may be a private EMS service that provides EMS to the county. A good example of that would be the county west of Hamilton County. It's Marion County, uh, which is run by a service called Puckett EMS. Um, they are, I believe, based in Georgia, but they do hold some contracts for some smaller Tennessee counties right over the Georgia line. Um, and then you have third service, I believe is what it's called. Um, and that's kind of how Chattanooga and Hamilton County is. It's under the county government. Um, it is run as EMS only, um, 911 only. Uh, they do not do convalescent or interfacility. Um, and protocols can change from county to county. Each system has their own medical director. So, for example, um, Hamilton County EMS has uh, Dr. Bukait, um, who is their medical director. He's one of the chiefs of emergency medicine um, at Erlanger Health System, which is affiliated with the University of Tennessee. Um, but if you go to the county east, um, to Bradley County, um, their service is a 911 convalescent government third service. Um, but they have their own medical director. So as far as I understand it, I could be wrong, but as far as I understand it, each service's medical director can essentially look at the state protocols and I don't want to say cherry pick, but as long as it is within those parameters, they can create their own version of those protocols. And there are you know, like I'm looking at the 2023 protocols for Hamilton County and, you know, there's, they change, you know, they typically do a revision every year or two. Um, as I mentioned before we started recording, you know, they added on, I, I believe I haven't found it in here, but I know my buddy Doug had told me um, that they had added in, you know, like antibiotics while I was still there. Um, they got Lucas devices. Uh, they got uh, McGrath laryngoscopes. Um, you know, auto power loading, power loading systems. Um, while I was there, you know, they started using ketamine. Uh, ketamine came on board as a protocol. Um, Atomidate came on board as a, as a, as a medication. Um, but yeah, to long and short of it, it's, it's very variable. Um, you can, you can work for a county service for any length of time and then move, you know, 30 miles east and it's a completely different setup. Are jurisdictional or, you know, like system medical directors able to put protocols in that are not in the state protocol? I don't know for sure. Okay. Um, I, I'm, I'm not entirely certain. Cause I uh, think, I think if they do, it has to, I would imagine it would need to be cleared by the state medical director. Okay. Um, but I, I have no idea. Because how Maryland ends up so, pulling it off is like we have a foundational statewide protocol. Um, and then mm -hmm. we do uh, we, we call them jurisdictional optional protocols. So one or two jurisdictions or, you know, a, a group of jurisdictions might want to do a certain skill or something and they'll introduce it to a state protocol committee. Um, and then mm -hmm. once that's passed, 
that committee and the uh, we have a the how EMS is governed in Maryland is uh, there's like an EMS board that oversees it. Uh, once they pass mm-hmm. it, then whatever jurisdiction that wants to do that protocol can, um, and uh, whoever doesn't, you know, doesn't have to. Uh, I think I cut Ken off. That's okay. Um, now I was just going to ask if, in practice, John, is there a lot of diversity from county to county in terms of what the protocols are? You know, what people are practicing, or is it pretty similar throughout? That even though you have this ability to have this uh, different, well, diverse set of protocols, most people end up kind of doing the same thing anyway. As far as as far as I know, um, you know, the protocol differences are can be pretty, pretty different. Um, you know, for example, I mentioned the county east of Hamilton County. Um, their protocols are extremely aggressive. Uh, their their uh, service medical director is, is very pro-EMS. I believe he was prior EMS before medical school. I'm not entirely sure of that. Um, I'd heard that somewhere. Um, the problem with that, though, is there's not a lot of, it's it's a very permissive he's a very permissive medical director so there's kind of this ongoing joke that if this county EMS system picks up anybody and they're going to transport them to the hospital they're RSI um whereas you do have services that are very much on the other end um where they're very 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 conservative in their protocols i briefly worked for a uh, county system uh and by briefly, I mean like five months because it was like, this is trash. Um, I mean, they didn't carry paralytics. Their only uh, analgesic was morphine. Um, they, it was just a dumpster fire. Um, I, I, and, and they were so rural. I mean, we're talking hour long transports to a trauma mm-hmm. center. Um, oh, wow. it, was, it was very difficult to manage patients that you know, may have had like, you know, farm equipment injuries. Uh, for example, or, you know, burn injuries, you know, so it, it it goes up to the, the service medical director. There is a lot of variability. Um, I know like Nashville fire tends to have oddly enough for a metropolitan fire EMS system, very conservative protocols. Um, I think that might be in part because they have such short transport times, you know? Um, and you have such a wide array of, of hospitals there. Does that answer your question? It does. Um, it, it sounds like there is a, you know, you've got everything from the, you know, very, like you said, very aggressive. We've got paralytics and, you know, all these drips and all this cool stuff all the way mm-hmm. to the only analgesic we have is morphine. And there's a, right. that's, that's pretty diverse to me. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I had worked or volunteered slash worked in a similar type setup when I was in El Paso. Um, there, uh, there is really no state guideline. Uh, each medical director is allowed to come up with their medical protocols based on what they're comfortable with, what their system can handle, uh, what their system is built like. Well, in El Paso, uh, you've got the city of El Paso. You've got El Paso County, which is built, is broken into two emergency service districts. You've got multiple private agencies, both 911 and private transport, and all of them have different sets of protocols working within sometimes the same geographical boundaries. Wow. Um, so the department that I volunteered slash worked for, uh, and that's a 
to understand that that's another topic but uh when we did go als um we created protocols that supplemented the private agency that did our transport we were first response only so that agency didn't do cpap we put cpap in our protocols i feel like that's an important um, one yeah it's it's weird uh it's another discussion for another time on this the whole system but we had to build out stuff so that we could supplement what we thought was important for the community we protected. Uh, it's been about a year since I saw their updated protocols, and they seem to be even advancing past what the city of El Paso is doing. Um, the the private agency that we worked with didn't carry narcotics. Yes. How's that work? <laughs> uh, it was interesting, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, if any, sorry, right, sir. Uh, friends getting tore it all yeah uh they um emti's were not allowed to do 12 leads unless it was a cardiac in nature complaint you know stuff like that it was a lot of money-based decisions uh yeah it, it's it's a crazy world that we worked in out there um and to the point where their goal is to eventually that that department i was with is going to try and take over transport within their first due um and then run their own protocols but to give you just to cap it off they did a contract with another private agency to take calls within the city limits um and that agency has different protocols than the agency that they work with for the county protocol for the county calls yes that's just it is oh it's the wild wild west it's of a these. <laughs> or a maze rather yeah um, Wow. For for folks in Maryland that uh, complain about a statewide protocol, this is a great uh, reason as to why, sure, maybe things aren't the absolute best, although I would argue that we've done very well in the last five years. Uh, things could be a lot worse. Things could be a lot worse. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, so talk talk to us about your like job now, because one of the things that's very uh, it, it's it's always interesting to me when I hear paramedics and the well paramedics really working as paramedics in hospitals, because in Maryland that is illegal. You cannot do that. So yeah, I yeah, I remember you mentioning it on the phone, and I mean i I knew it. I knew it's not a common thing across the country, uh, but I guess I'm kind of just stuck in my bubble down here. Um, so um, it is not. A, I don't. It. I think it's pretty much left up to the hospital institutions. You know, for example, there's three hospital systems based in Hamilton County. You've got the Trauma Center, uh, Erlanger, which is part of UT, um, University of Tennessee uh, College of Medicine, and then you have uh, Parkridge Health System that's owned by HCA, and then you have CHI Memorial, uh, the Catholic Health Initiative. Um, Memorial, they do not employ paramedics in any context, as far as I know. Um, the Parkridge Health System, I think they do, but I think their scope of practice is, is kind of limited up to a, up to a little bit over what a patient care tech can do in the ER. And then Erlanger Health System, um, they, I, I don't know how long they've allowed it. I mean, it's, it's been as far back as I can remember. Um, but, you know, the medics, they don't work on like the floors. They don't work in, you know, neuro ICU or anything like that. It's pretty much the, the emergency department and their scopes of practice are very, very open. Um, I mean, 
there are not many things scope wise that I cannot do that a nurse can. Um, so for example, if we have a patient who needs a blood transfusion, um, suspected or confirmed GI bleed, we need to give them blood. I cannot, we use Epic as our charting system. Um, I cannot initiate that blood as far as documentation goes. And we all know the difference between documentation and what might happen in the, in the heat of the moment and who's actually touching the thing, you know, the you know, releasing the, the you know, opening it up. Uh, but as far as scope wise, I cannot start that blood. An RN has to do that, but it's a dual sign off much like insulin or something else where two licensed people have to, to sign off and confirm, you know, heparin is a dual sign off to confirm how many units or uh, what rate the heparin infusion is going. Um, but I can do, you know, I can do Foley catheters. I can do EJs. I recently got ultrasound trained, so I can do ultrasound guided IVs, uh, which is like cheating, honestly. Um, <laughs> it's, it's like a video game. Um, and it, honestly, I believe everybody should be trained to do that because it's, you'd be surprised how much vasculature there is available once you see it under ultrasound. Um, but when you move out Erlanger, you know, they, they control six physical hospitals. Uh, a couple of them are in very rural areas. Um, and you know, they they fall under critical care access facilities. And in those facilities, I have full scope of practice. Um, if someone comes in and they are circling the drain and we're like, okay, this patient needs to be RSI. Um, you know, I would hope that the physician would do it, but maybe they don't. If there is a situation where I needed to do it, I could do it. Um, so then the full scope of, in, the, in those facilities, the full scope of the, the Tennessee paramedic scope of practice comes into play. And in some of those facilities, you might it might be a doctor and a paramedic, and there might not even be an RN there. Um, granted, these are very small, like six, seven bed ERs. Um, so yeah, that's so cool. That's so interesting. Yeah, and once again, I can I can actually kind of relate. Uh, so in Texas, paramedics are allowed to be um, techs in the ER, and mm. I I don't know if it's you know regional. Um, my experience is solely limited to El Paso, but when I was doing my clinicals, um, there was paramedic techs that we would get paired up with some days. Like at the one hospital we spent a lot of time at, the fast track was a PA and a, a paramedic. Mm -hmm. There was no nurse down there. Okay. Um, the nurses or the uh, paramedic techs could do, like you said, EJs, Foley's. They could innovate. So if the doc was not available and everything else was there as needed, the, the nurses could push the meds and the paramedic would then take care of the innovation. Um, and they would, you know, there were certain things that like say an EJ was needed. They'd tag in the paramedic tech. They'd come in, take care of the EJ and off they would go to help out with other patients. And then every now and then there was a nurse that was dual trained. They were paramedic before or had gotten it after their RN. And they could they their scope of practice was much larger because they could dual hat and do mm -hmm. the EJ and then take care of the RN responsibilities as well. So, so it, was, it was a really interesting like system to see because you know grew up in Maryland, 
was AMT in Maryland and never saw that. And then saw all this use of the paramedic in the hospital. And it's a very common thing for paramedics to become techs in the ER in El Paso. So in those circumstances, so in those circumstances for both of you guys, are there limits in terms, I mean, John already explained like the blood thing, but like medications and stuff like that, are there limits to what you can give as a paramedic by, are you limited in scope or it's pretty much a free for all a medication is a medication. Uh, and so as far as, so you've got your dual sign off medications, which I can dual sign off on anything. There's no medication that I'm aware of in my two and a half years of working for them that I can't dual sign, you know, insulin, heparin, all these things, uh, your, uh, uh, pressors, all that stuff. I can start pressors if the order's there. It's a dual sign. Um, drugs like paralytics, um, I cannot physically administrate or administer, excuse me, which is kind of odd considering. But um, if if there's a patient in, you know, where we're doing an RSI, I cannot push that medication. I cannot push propofol. Um, I can chart it. I can monitor it. I can, you know, as far as like if we're doing a propofol drip, I can titrate it if it's needed. Um, but I cannot in the in the induction phase, I cannot administer those medications. Okay. Everything yeah. else, I mean, if someone needs to be put on an epidrip, cardizem, or just they need we're we're boarding them in the ER waiting for a floor bed and they need their thirty nightly meds, we're good. Um I, I can't comment on um what it's like in Texas. Uh it's been that was 2016 was the last time I was in ER in, in El Paso um, as a student, at least. Uh, so it's been a minute. Fair enough. And and I should clarify, uh, we have, there's plenty of EMTs and or paramedics that work in emergency departments here. But how it works mm-hmm. is like a hospital is not going to advertise uh, we're hiring paramedics. They're going to say we're hiring ED techs. And then in the comments or in the yeah in the description, they can say EMT or paramedic experience preferred. But they yep. it is completely once it by function, it's completely separated. Like um, even me as a paramedic, like if I was to go work at a hospital, I'm doing the job of a CNA. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, Moose, but you have to have a CNA or an LPN or an RN. You can't just get hired. And they have, exactly, they have to give you the CNA. Like technically, uh, so I, a while ago, I did a EMT to CNA bridge, which was a eight hour class. Yes. An EMT to CNA bridge, which, um, well, no comment. Yeah. I'm going to have to, I'm going to write that one down so I can remember it. Uh, it was um, um, one of the, the, one of the only things I remember, well, two things is one, how to make a mitt for a bed bath. <laughs> like for what's yeah. and, so, the and then the other thing I remember is hospital corners uh, for like making mm-hmm. a bed. Um, I just, I remember sitting there thinking, cause I mean, where I've at that point I had volunteered for a while and I was like, you know, I, I felt myself to be a decently new EMT doing EMT stuff. And then I'm here learning this stuff. It was mind blowing, but yeah, no, Ken, that's a great point. I'm happy you brought that up. 
Yeah, and uh, my wife actually did the EMT to CNA bridge too, and I'll just leave it at she was not impressed. <laughs> I mean, like, well, I had my she realized she realized she needed to move on to becoming an RN, and does a pretty good job at that, right? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Wow. Um. So I I think I had a lapse in memory because I feel like the the post that uh, we talked about was a mental health thing too. I feel like I'm mixing up memories. I'm trying to remember exactly how we started. Am I remembering correctly now? Uh, so the post um, that where you contacted me was a um, post about I had worked a a shift, you know, just a shift like any other, and I had a patient that had come in. Um, that just emotionally broke me. Yeah. Um, the title of the post was eviscerate, eviscerated emotionally once again. Um, it was about this. I've got the post pulled up now. It was about a forties year old female, um, single parent of four kids, a uh, attorney in the area that presented with greater than two weeks of intermittent abdominal pain, epistaxis, vaginal bleeding, rectal bleeding, fatigue, and easy bru- easy bruising. Um. Not actively hemorrhaging, uh, but you know, very high white count, very low platelet count. H and H was low, and just the journey through that eight hour or so period of time of presentation to initial diagnosis and the hospitalist service um, sending out their recommendations that were de- just devastating. Um, and how it, I couldn't not let myself, even though I had other patients, I couldn't not let myself be more, or be, I couldn't just, I had to let my human side show. I, I couldn't just be like, okay, you know, I've got some other patients, I'll be back, I'll check on you. I had to sit in there and and try to, I mean, there are no, there's nothing I can tell her that's going to make this better, or her kids. Um, but just grieve, you know, with her as someone who is in the medical field because I, I've, I've been taking care of her, so I have to continue to do that. And it just, I think the reason, because I can remember when I was on the truck, there were calls that I think we can all agree physically and emotionally broke you. But this was one of the first ones in my working in the ER that just, it, and I, I don't know, it, it was a little different because, you know, I'm, I'm not with this patient for 30 minutes or 45 minutes. I'm with this patient for her entire duration of care in the ER as far as until I clock out and go home. Um, so, yeah, that, that's, that's where you reached out to me was in regards to this post. Um, and that's how kind of this ball got rolling. Yeah. Yeah, I I have a terrible memory first, so I do apologize for that. But no, I, I'm so happy, you you know, and I'm so, first of all, I'm sorry that that happened, right? Because I th- like you said, I think all of us have had those calls and EMS and medicine, uh, a, a component of, of it is we, we see that the tragedy that happens to humanity and we are often the one we are often the ones that not only have to help but are there to you know console and grieve with the patient so and i really appreciate you sharing that with us how if you don't mind me asking how was the rest of the hospital or or your team's response to you wanting to do that was it 
different than you know your the response that you've had before in EMS systems? So, just I mean, as a very general thing, the especially you know, especially on I primarily work nights, it's much more of a team environment. You know, to, for example, like we ran a witness or we we worked a witness arrest this morning in the ED. Everybody, I mean, roles were very clear. There was no stepping over feet. Everybody knew their job, closed loop communication. You know, it ended up getting called, which is unfortunate. Uh, and then at the very end, the critical care or uh, the house supervisor who was kind of running the show was just like, let's go ahead and debrief. You know, what did we do right? What did we do wrong? Is everybody okay? I'm here until this time if anyone needs to talk. Just very, you know, methodical and very you know, algorithmic, if you will. Um, in, in terms of this case, um, there was another nurse who was working kind of the adjacent section to mine. And she, she was equally upset. Um, she, I mean, we, before we ended up leaving in the morning, we went up, ended up going in there and talking to the patient. The kids had since gone home um, for you know, 10 or 15 minutes. And it, it just, it was awful. Um, but as far as the rest of the department, I mean, it's, it's still an ER, you know, they're still taking care of emergencies and, and the boarded patients, you know, I've, I've spoken about it to obviously my partner, um, and a couple of other people, uh, as well as the, the internet. Um, but I do, I'm confident that if, if I had gone to my charge nurse and said, Hey, I need a minute. Can you, you know, can you take over my section for like 15 minutes while I just go get some fresh air outside? He would have been like, absolutely. You know, take 20, you know, or just go ahead and take your lunch break. You know, how does that compare to your past experience in with like EMS systems? Oh man. Um, uh, I'll give you the two examples I gave you when we talked. And on the you know, podcast. I have to ask you that, right? So no, I, I'm, and I'm glad you do. I mean, you yeah. know, I don't want to sit here and 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 bash an EMS system because every system has good and bad. Um, but where this one really struggles is, you know, crew welfare. Uh, so I'll give you the two examples I gave you on the phone. I don't know if you told Josh and Ken. No, I didn't prime them at okay. all. Yeah. So one of the one of the one of the final contributing factors to me leaving um, this essentially was the nail in the coffin. Um, it was about mid December, and we, me and my partner, we were both medics. He was a new medic. We were actually he had to go that day to take his protocols exam, so he could actually start taking calls. Um, and he's a great guy, great person. You know, cares about people outside of medicine. Cares about people. You know, we all care about the patient, but like outside of work cares about and you know he was slow and you know but every new medic is slow you know you don't you don't just jump into you know amazing competency um we hadn't run a single call uh, we went to our training center which was you know halfway across town probably nine thirty in the morning uh and it took him what seemed like an eternity to take that test we were out of service obviously i can't drive and take calls at the same time um so i was sitting out in the truck you know doom scrolling the internet and i just started to feel anxious don't know why you know hadn't again i hadn't run a call um 
at the time, at, at this point in, in my job, we were working 2472s, which was a godsend. Um, and by the time he got back, we were driving back to the station. I just, I, I could feel it. I, I'm like, I don't know what is happening. I don't know why I feel this way, but I'm on the verge of going into a full-blown panic attack. And I have a history of that. You know, it, it's from my childhood, from the military, and you know, I've been in therapy for a really long time. And I just, I, I don't have great coping mechanisms, um, unfortunately. So we get back to the station. I call my supervisor, and I was like, I was in tears. I was like, I... I don't know what is going on. I'm having a panic attack right now. I, I really, really, I need to come off the truck. You know, I can, and I even offered, I was like, I can stay till seven. You know, if you can get me someone to come in at 7 p.m., I will try to pull myself together. I need to go home. I need to be in my safe place so I can kind of work through this. I'll be fine by the next shift. And, you know, the way it should have gone was like, Okay, yeah, let's find you coverage. Go home. You know, I'll check in on you tomorrow morning and see how you're doing. You know, let's get you well. You know, this job is hard. You know, it, it breaks a lot of people a lot of times. What actually happened uh, was I got sent home. The truck went out of service until they could find someone to, to staff it. And this was a busy truck. All right. This was in a section of Chattanooga that is busy. We're talking, you know, an average of at minimum 12 to 15 calls a shift. But there were times in my tenure at that truck where I, I broke over 20, um, which in 24 hours is, and I'm talking like, I'm talking like 20 transports, not 20 dispatches because everybody has like the medical alarms or the whatever. Anyway, so I get sent home and no one, they, you know, I had to, they, they dropped the EAP thing on me. Uh, which I understand county policy, it's fine. But no one from my place of employment contacted me, texted me, checked up on me for 44 hours. You know, I could have gone home. I know this is kind of morbid, but I could have gone home and drank myself to death or not been able to cope and eaten a bullet and no one would have known. I mean, you know, my partner would have known, but as far as the government, you know, employment aspect of this, no one would have known. And I brought that up, you know, in my exit interview that I requested because uh, I wanted this to be heard. Um, and then it just, it kind of, it kind of just devolved, uh, you know, because we were so close to Christmas, um, you know, the EAP I talked to was like, yeah, this sounds exactly like you're saying. It's just an acute panic attack. You know, from the EAP standpoint, you're good. They wouldn't accept that because I do see a therapist. And they're like, well, you, you can't come back until your therapist clears you. And of course, I can't just call them up and be like, hey, can you clear me? There's a form I have, you know, I have to work under his schedule. So I ended up missing like something like two or three shifts right around Christmas. I had no PTO bank, um, so it was unpaid, which did not help the whole situation. Um, and that was it. So, and, and the final thing was when I went back, a supervisor that I'd been an apologist for 
for years. I mean, he had directly supervised me for about 70% of my tenure there. A lot of people did not like this person. And I'd been an apologist for him. We were talking in the Bay. And we were talking about kind of what happened. And he said, jokingly, I hope, and I kind of understand where he was coming from, but he essentially said, you know, I hate that this happened, but like, then if, if this happens again, just shoot me a text and, and tell me you have a tummy ache and you need to go home. And I would like to think he was coming like so we could avoid all of this, but it was just very <clears throat> invalidating. You know, next time this happens, you know, just just let us tell us you have a tummy ache. So, you know, we just send you home. And that was it. Like from that moment, from that very moment, I started making my exit plan. I was done. So let me ask you this, John. Um, why why do you think the stigma around mental health is as such to have created the experience that you experienced? Because if you had been on the truck and had chest pain. Or if you had been on the truck and gotten in a vehicle accident, things probably would have played out extremely differently. People would have been checking on you. There wouldn't have been any of this nonsense running around, you know, making you get certified that you're okay. Um, what's the disconnect? What's the difference? Because to me, having anxiety or a full-blown panic attack is basically like the chest pain of mental health, right? Like this, this is like, Hey, there's something really wrong. I need to get checked out. It's a symptom of something bigger coming. Yeah. Um, well, I think in the, in the macro in the, in the wide view, I think it's just a, it's a systemic issue as a whole. But I think in, if you take it down under a microscope, you know, I remember when, before we had the auto-loading systems, you know, I, I hurt my shoulder lifting a really heavy patient. And when we, you know, when we, I, I let my supervisor know on the way to the hospital, I shot him a text. I was like, hey, man, I've done something to my shoulder. I've got, like, numbness in part of my arm. I mean, it, it hurts. I don't know if I've messed up my rotor, rotator cuff or what. Immediately, immediately, okay, when you clear the hospital, you're out of service. We're going to go over here and get you evaluated. They evaluate me immediately on the job injury. I'm off for a shift pending an MRI to make sure I don't have an injury that's going to keep me out of work. No questions asked. You know, I had a couple of years ago, I had an exposure immediately out of service, uh, blood drawn uh, to make sure it wasn't, you know, something. I think there was a concern for like meningitis or something like that. So immediately uh, blood was drawn, cultures were drawn, um, and I was, you know, on-the-job injury, off with, with pay until those results came back. But with mental health, it's like it's it's like an inconvenience. It's well, you know, we're really busy today. Like it it, it feels like it might not be the words coming out of the person's mouth, but it feels like. Can you just calm down? We don't have time for this. And working in the ER, I see this even more now, where. People come to the ER because it's their only place to go. You know, a lot of therapists, you know, they don't accept insurance, so it's self-pay. You know, a lot, and a lot of them, especially if they've been in the ER for a lot, uh, you know, several times, they get 
they get labeled a drug seeker. They just want benzos. They just want, you know, whatever. God forbid you mix in low income, no insurance or homeless. They might as well not even be human. And it, but if, if that same person comes in, no insurance, homeless, they've been there a million times and that troponin comes back, you know, at a thousand, oh, they're getting the full cardiac workup. They're getting admitted. They're going to do consults with the cardiology service and internal medicine. And it's just, I mean, that's, I feel like that's why there's such a push with like our generation, like mental health is health, you know, and, and the service that I worked for, the people that essentially run the show and the supervisory level, I don't think they understand that. They, you know, they're of the generation that, you know, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps type of thing, you know, and it's okay. I mean, sure. If you stub your toe, yeah, but. You know, if, if I if I am so panicked that I my mind is racing, I'm breathing, I feel clammy. You expect me to be able to provide adequate patient care? I'm sorry, it's inconvenient. I I wish I could control it, but sometimes you can't. Sorry, right, I'm very long winded. No, no, <laughs> I like it. Kinda. Yeah, no, thank you. I mean, it's really good perspective, Josh. Were you going to say something? No, I was just saying no that that it talk how you want to talk about it and tell us what you want to tell tell yeah. us about it like there's no need to be short about it um it's just so know, frustrating and, i mean it, huh. it every time i talk about it, it gives me like i just want to like it's the benefit it. of running our own podcast we can do whatever we want so yeah. <laughs> yeah. no right. we appreciate the candidness man because listen what everything you're saying you know i mean there the uh, there's there's folks that are going to listen to this or going to watch this that have felt the same way and have been in the same spot, or maybe they're in that same spot right now and mm-hmm. your words are going to help them. Right. So we know for a fact that we, one of our most popular episodes was uh, uh, our mental health episode. And we know for a fact, Ken reached out to us because someone who reached out to him and said we, he, they needed that episode. Right. So mm-hmm. uh, we, we really appreciate, you know, you being candid with us. Uh, it It's so this is the part of the episode where I try to find words without sounding like an idiot. The, I don't get it. Uh, my, my wife's grandfather uh, was a World War II vet. And I, I had the opportunity, and I, I talked to her uncles a lot. And they talk about his struggles with mental health. I, of course, generational attitude towards mental health is a thing, right? And I know it's a lot of it, but I feel like it's bigger than that. I feel like it's other stuff. I I, I think you hit the nail on the head when people are, are trying to make a buck, right? When companies are trying to make a buck, I think that's a component. Mm-hmm. I think another component is, and I don't like this. I don't necessarily agree with this, but like some, you can see a broken femur, right? You can't see what's going on in someone's head. And then all that coupled with the stigma, it's just, you know, I'm just echoing your frustrations, man. It's, it's a, it's a shit situation. You know, that's all. I mean, I wish I had an answer. And it's It's hard because the deeper you go down that rabbit hole and the more complex the issues, the person experiences become, the less people want to listen, you know, like it's cool. It's in vogue right now to say, I support mental health, 
but then once you start unloading on someone, people are like, uh, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that is? I mean, Ken, John, I mean, all you guys, why do you think people get, you know, that I'm not going to try to redo the sound Ken just made, but why, why do you think that happens? I'll throw it to John. We're here for you, man. Yeah, I I think that this is going to sound maybe a little jaded. I think that the majority of people want to appear as if they are willing to listen and help. But when that actually when it when the time actually comes be it because they are insincere or they just don't have the experience or the understanding, it hits them really fast and, and they, they either decide, okay, I I don't understand how to help this person, or worst case, I don't really want to like i don't or i don't have time to and i see this a lot reflected in the er yeah because we do get a lot of psychiatric and you know emotional mood disorders things like that you know and i want you know if if, especially if i if i can almost like feel like this person and i have a very common like connection with this you know, like I want to spend as much time as I can talking to that patient to try to, you know, de-escalate what's going on. Um, but you know, and, and I sometimes, you know, if the, if the situation's right, if all my other patients are squared away, if I've got some extra time, you know, I'll I'll try to give them ten, fifteen minutes of just undivided attention, talking, getting down on their level, you know, talking to them as human to human, and even sometimes, probably shouldn't, but even sometimes, you know telling them about some of my own experiences, you know, obviously kind of watered down. Um, but I do work, I would say with the majority of my coworkers who still, you know, if they see someone come in on the track board and the chief complaint is panic attack before they've seen the name, the age, the gender, any of it, they scoff and they're just like, great, you know? And it's just like, at least let them get back here first. And, and mm-hmm. let's kind of, see what's going on and then maybe formulate, you know, an opinion. Um, and it, it, that's, that's frustrating. And I, I, it's such a big interconnected, intertwined, gross web of crap because, you know, the healthcare system itself is failing, you know, we're watching that with our own eyes. Um, chronic short staffing, you know, people that newer newer nurses, newer medics that may have never really dealt with this type of you know, healthcare before. It's like you said, you know, if you see a femur fracture, like it's very algorithmic. You know what to do. Everybody has a femur for the most part, for the most part. But not everybody has PTSD and even amongst that, it's so wide. I mean, it could be from you know, being involved in a shootout as a police officer from the military, from a, a, an abusive partner, from an abusive childhood, from a near-death experience, from aliens, who knows? Like, it could be from so many different things. And a lot of people, I don't think, have the willingness or the time or the to, to deal with it. So I think a lot of people that would care kind of freeze up. And then I do think there's also some people out there that just don't care. 
and that follow the the status quo of um, that. Um, um, I'm looking for the word there. That um, assumption, not assumption. Um, you said it earlier. My mind's having a brain fart. But um, no, yeah. I, I think I think we get what you're saying. The I think you made a really good point of people don't know what to do. And the have any of you guys taken the mental health first aid course? I had the opportunity to take it, and then I'll be honest with you, I kind of skipped it, um, only because it was virtual, and I just couldn't do it. But I just didn't have the fortitude that day to do it. But um, we had uh, a while ago, we had two captains from jurisdictions locally that came on, and they talked about how they, you know, their folks were put through mental health first aid training or their, you know, their peer support teams or I wonder if that class gives like tangible tools to help, you know, it, almost like you said, in an algorithmic way, approach these issues, because then, um, I don't know, maybe folks might have a better, because uh, I, I, the, I'm going back to the analogy of if I was a lay person and I didn't know how to mess, uh, how to fix a, a broken femur, or at least how to like, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, hold traction and all that. Like if I didn't know that stuff, then I would be probably, if someone came to me, like, help me with my broken femur, I'd probably do the same thing. I'd be like, uh, I can't help you, but obviously in a more visceral way. Um, I don't know. I, I wonder if that's the solution. I wonder if we need to incorporate more. And I don't know what that stuff is. Cause I'm not a mental health provider, but like someone who, I wonder if we need to incorporate more first, responder well sorry mental health first responder stuff just like how we treat cardiology and how to like mm -hmm. if the heart rate's too slow pace them up if they're you know if it's too fast you you know uh, uh cardio or electrically cardioid or chemically cardioid i wonder if we need to teach tangible algorithms for uh mental health support if those exist i think you just hit it on the head moose because when you teach emt and paramedic you spend hours practicing traction splints. You spend months in cardiology. You spend four hours in EMT getting a two-hour lecture on behavioral emergencies and four hours in paramedic, and then you never talk about it again. You never practice it. You never sit down and say, this is how you talk to somebody in crisis, and this is we're going to practice that. You never do any of that. You never come back to it. You never loop around. It's just a quick lecture one night a quiz and you're done probably taught by someone who doesn't know what they don't know i mean that's one of the overarching themes here but like that we're always talking about but like uh a, and the average paramedic instructor is going to know how to deal with that cardiology stuff hopefully uh compared to what you're you're what you're you know what you're describing ken sorry yeah. josh i cut you off uh we talked about it uh on that wasn't the mental health episode, but I think it was the topic topics in social work is that um, we're not taught how to deescalate. Mm. And that's part of that. Like it's never taught in CE, never taught in an academy, never taught in paramedic EMT. Like we don't, we're not taught to talk to people in crisis. Like Ken just said, like we don't know how to relate. We learn it on the street. Sometimes good, sometimes bad, sometimes both. Um, and I can speak, that prior to um, meeting my wife and her becoming a um, social worker and a therapist and her knowledge and what we talk about um, as a couple that 
my knowledge of that stuff was nowhere near what it was. And yeah, that's 10 plus years into this when I met her. And uh, most of us don't know these things, don't understand these things, don't understand what can be going on with these patients. Yeah. We run the panic attack all the time. Um, and it, there's plenty of people that blow it off. There's plenty of people that try to understand, but most of us don't know how to understand it. And even I, as someone who talks to a therapist, not professionally, <laughs> but every day, <laughs> um, there's plenty that I don't know about it. And I think it's a very undelved into topic that, um, needs to be addressed. The question is how, how, how do we really get people to understand how to talk to someone in crisis and understand why this is happening? You know, there's, there's whole degrees on this one pathway. Because the, the, so, the complicated yeah. part is, you know, I, even if I have, you know, 80% stenosis of a, some random artery, it's not going to affect how I talk to someone who also, who's having a STEMI. But if I have mental health issues, it's going to affect me on how I talk to someone, uh, you know, who's also having, uh, you know, who may be in mental health crisis. So that's the additional complicator here. Uh, you know, we, each of us bring our own trauma, whether we like it or not, uh, to our patients, especially when it comes to things like compassion fatigue, like you, you, you described, um, the, the seeking behavior, you know, that you've seen in patients. Uh, I was talking to Ken about this. Uh, I, I just finished watching on Netflix, the documentary, uh, painkiller, or it's not a documentary, but it's like a show about the Sackler family and everything. Mm -hmm. And it's funny, I'm watching it and I, f I felt myself get anxious. Like I'm watching it and I'm like, why do I feel this way? Why, why am I getting pent up? Why am I getting like, you know, almost defensive? And I don't think I really went into detail with Ken more so because I was kind of in the moment when I was telling him that. Uh, I realized after thinking about it for a while that I, when I was in the field full time, was one of the major spikes of opiates. So I was used to that. One of the characters they follow is a guy who, normal guy, has an injury and eventually becomes addicted to these things, uh, you know, these opiates. And I was like, holy shit, I've seen this patient a thousand times. I rem and I, and what I didn't realize was I, you know, until later on and talking to my therapist and everything, um, I had seen people that w appeared normal that over a span of a few months or whatever, just decompensate until I pronounced them. That journey wasn't only, you know, I honestly can only remember one patient that I, I had experienced that with, but that was enough. And it's just, uh, that, that's an example of what I'm talking about. Like you, you're, we're always bringing in our own stuff. And, uh, I think we always say, uh, we've talked about mental health a thousand times on this podcast and, um, not literally a thousand times, but you know what I mean? Um, we're always thinking about what can we do different. I think we might be onto something by, you know, incorporating this into our textbooks. Uh, you know, it, it getting our mental health partners to come when we're writing textbooks, when we're writing curricula. Um, I don't. I mean, the national, the DOT guidelines. I don't even know if they have anything on this. Um, they might. I, I, I probably should know if they do or not, but I don't know. I think that's a good start. And back to what Josh was saying, as far as like, this is something we should really start looking into like now 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 i think i mean 
if you look at EMS, kind of like in the early 80s, I think kind of late 70s when it was really just kind of like finding its feet, you know, like how how prevalent was a mental health emergency then versus now in a post-COVID world, post-COVID world, you know, like when I first started working, the, the, the first time I stepped on an ambulance when I was 23 years old, I don't, I can't remember clearly, but I feel like between then and now, the prevalence of any type of mental health crisis is a lot more now. Yet the training and education for it has largely not changed. Um, I wonder if the prevalence is more now or if it's just recognized more now. Because if you go back 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years, the first time somebody had a mental health episode, they were thrown in an asylum. And they were locked up for life. And now we can treat the acute episode so people are experiencing recurrent and typically worsening with age episodes. You know, I'm I'm not arguing with you. I'm just spitballing here. I'm curious. I think that's a good point. Because, Uh, you know, like, I would have been lobotomized 100 years ago. (laughs) Seriously, I would have. But um, (laughs) here I I am. So I think you hit the nail on the head because let's not forget. Uh, okay, this is this might actually upset some of our listeners. My least favorite president of the United States is Ronald Reagan for two <laughs> for, for for two things for two two reasons. Number one, war on drugs. Right, we oh, will get absolutely. into that. But number next. Uh, him put his efforts to push through Congress the repeal of what was it? Uh, and I'm I'm like looking it up just to make sure I have it right. I believe it's the Me- Mental Health Systems Act of 1980 that Carter signed. Yeah, in, Carter, right? Jimmy Carter. And then, uh, but he, Reagan, as a governor, I believe, uh, pushed through uh, a through uh, you know did a ton of effort, uh, made a ton of effort to repeal most of those things, and that in term uh, in turn stripped a lot of our mental health resources now number one i cannot wait for the hate mail we get because we never get any mail so if i get hate mail i'm looking forward to it being uh uh about my uh issue my stance on uh reagan but uh that's one thing the other thing is it could be both right it could be that there was a reporting bias but let's not forget that we just went through one of the most traumatic times in like the history of humanity right in terms of shutting our systems down for how many what, two years mm-hmm. telling our kids hey you're gonna you're gonna not interact and socially develop you're gonna actually stay home look at a screen for eight hours and when you do interact you're gonna have a mask on which again we're not gonna go into public health debate here but i think that's probably not something we did right also uh we told people that hey we're gonna we're, we're gonna keep you inside where you're not allowed to go outside, but liquor stores are open, but you can't go to AA, right? We probably messed up. We probably messed up there, right? Um, I, I, I'm just I'm just spitballing here. So it's probably a combination of both. Um, 
I always say, man, I, lately I feel like people are driving more erratic. Uh, we're seeing more erratic stuff. And yeah, maybe it could be like sensor bias, right? So like our media and everything is picking it up more, but I don't know. The world feels a lot crazier than it did in 2019. Mm-hmm. So uh, I was thinking about this the other day, actually. Um, and it's because of the current conflict that has spawned up again in the Middle East and how I feel like a lot over the past um, seven, six, seven years, we've seen like all these things happen around the globe. You know, we've got Russia, Ukraine, we've got COVID, we've got um, uh, the riots of the summer of 2020. We've got um, contention in our politics. We've got contention around the world and uh, social issues, political issues, all this stuff. And people are like, man, we're living through all these things or, you know, the millennial generation is just like, it's taken like a gut punch one after another every day. It's like, is it, or is it because like you said, we're primed for it. We're seeing it more or has life always been this way. And now we're getting confronted with it every day. We're seeing it in our feeds. We're seeing it. We're talking about it right now. We're talking about it at work. Mm -hmm. It's, it's the topic at the the dinner table at work, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever it is. And, uh, how is that affecting us subliminally in our mental health? Like I think it's always a, been this way, but now it's just more prevalent. I think there's a direct correlation between like the social media, 24 seven news cycle and mental health. You know? Oh yeah. I mean, it used to be like, you know, if you, if you lived in, in, you know, Chattanooga back in the, you know, 1880s or whatever and some crazy thing happened you know like when the you know some crazy thing happened in new york you know it was, it was going to be a while until you found out about it and, and it was almost literally a world away yeah in, in like in the way you think about where you are and where new york is yeah but, but now yeah. <laughs> and it was a manicured it was a manicured version of what happened Right. So the media that you got was manicured. It was written. It was edited by an editor. The editor chief was like, okay, this isn't going to get me fired. This is okay. And that's what went out the door because it's the narrative that you want. Right. Now, uh, a kid gets blown up in Palestine and we're seeing it on a live feed. Right. And like we are seeing that live, like we're getting that live emotional reaction. Uh, no, so I, I, social media is a huge one, especially the way social media is structured, where I feel like it's almost tailored. Well, not almost. I mean, it's tailored to create your own reality, right? So, like, depending on what you're clicking, you're going to see more of that thing, and uh, you, you kind of create your own like manicured reality of, and that doesn't help because then when you go see someone on the outside world or even on social media that doesn't agree with your worldview. Oh, it's bombs, right? You're throwing bombs. They're throwing bombs. And at the end end of the day, you're mentally exhausted. Uh, But that person definitely didn't change their mind and you didn't change your mind. You know, that's why the the last few posts that I've made on uh, Facebook about the current situation, um, you know, in Israel and Palestine, I say, if you have a, if you want to disagree with me, I will buy you lunch, but we're going to have this conversation in person. We're not doing this BS nonsense on social media, but yeah, I really appreciate what you guys brought up about social media. Cause I think that's a huge, huge, uh, mental health detriment. goes back to the old saying, ignorance is bliss. You know, before social media, 
we didn't have like you said the the unsanitized raw direct version of everything going on we we probably didn't know about a lot that was going on in our daily lives as an average citizen now you can't get on any social media platform without getting all the grisly details of the latest, you know, neighborhood serial killer. You know, it's, yeah. it's just, uh, it's all there. And That's... you might not have even wanted to know about it. Right. Yeah. Uh, you, you might've wanted to just go on there and, and check on your, your friend who's on a Hawaiian vacation and see pictures and you're in a great mood. And then you see, you know, something that just happened uh, in the middle East. And, you know, now you're like, well, shit that i don't feel so great yep especially like how we triggers a lot, it triggers a lot of latent feelings and emotions and uh you know past traumas um without intending to go there yep uh so that that kind of you know as we kind of maybe bring this back a little in a full circle that patient we encounter they might not even know why they're triggered mm-hmm. because the last thing they were doing was scrolling TikTok, scrolling Instagram, looking at comments, whatever it was, and it just flipped a switch. Um, it put them back in a space that they never wanted to be back in. And now they're in a panic attack. They're having oh, a psychotic break. They're having, you know, they're all of a sudden enraged. They're agitated. Um, or they're at the opposite end where they're in the deepest, darkest hole. And they don't know why they're there and how they're going to get out. Yep. There's a, a book that I've admittedly never read, but it's supposed to be really good about PTSD called The Body Keeps the Score. And it's all about uh, that kind of stuff, how wait, you don't have to consciously recall everything. It's just the matter of your body knows what you've been through and when it happened and the things that remind you of it. And it's going to trigger exactly what Josh just said with the, you know, depression, agitation, anxiety, whatever it is. Yep. Um, yeah. Hmm. It's, 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 uh, I think we, every conversation about this, we, we get to the same point. I think there's a, always ends up being a collective frustration, uh, but I think mm-hmm. we did come up, co- come away with something good here, which is that, you know, that intent of, uh, you know, incorporating it into our training. Cause I'll tell you what, man, there, there's a lot of, uh, potential in a group of very small, dedicated, uh, a small group of dedicated people, right. That want to make change. Cause, uh, what I've said before on the podcast is things are the way they are because people just like us made them that way. Right. And that's pretty empowering because that means we can be the change that we want to see. Um, and that, that's what we have to do. There is no other choice, right? We deserve better. Our colleagues deserve better. And our patients, you know, the citizens and the folks we serve deserve better. Uh, and uh, it's a, uh, and the first step is us having these conversations and ultimately influencing not only the practices of what our agencies and uh, places of work do every day, but also how we promote policy changes to make a uh, change on a larger scale. So, um, John, uh, it's been... Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Josh. Yeah. So, not to cut off your your tie, your finishing off here, but, you know, this training that we're talking about, not only does it benefit our patient, you kind of hit it. It benefits all of us because 
if we don't know how to talk to each other, we don't know how to talk to patients. So in turn, if we learn how to talk to patients, we should be able to talk to each other about this and understand how to facilitate making sure um, the right processes are followed, the right things are said, the right things are done. Um, so uh, just a quick question, John, when you went home that day, did you drive yourself or did someone take you home? When, uh, uh, when I was working, when I was still working on the ambulance. Yeah. That they, that panic attack. No, I drove myself home. Yeah. So like from get from the drop, there was no like, Hey, we're going to make sure you get home safely. We're going to escort you home. We're going to make sure that you're in a, in a safe place in a safe environment, stuff like that. Like, just starting there where we can learn like how we navigate our patient's care. We can navigate our coworkers in our own care. So I don't know if I just rehashed something, but no, 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 that was great. No, that's huge. Ken, did you have anything uh, or no, no, cool. (laughs) Uh, John, uh, seriously, we really appreciate you coming on. Any, any last minute thoughts, anything you want to say? No, I, I agree with, you know, I, I think there were a lot of excellent points made. I've, it's it's hard to, you know, in, in conversations like this, you know, it's it's easy to feel uh, empowered, you know, when you're when you're talking to people that have this, you know, that understand and are open to change and open to exploring, you know, the how. But at the same time, this is where I have trouble. Is it's 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 hard to keep that moment, that energy, you know, it's kind of like, you know, you go on vacation, you have a really good time and then you get in like, you know, maybe the last two days, you, you already know what's coming, you know? And I, I struggle with, I, I want to keep up the energy. I want to you know keep having conversations like this. So hopefully um, I forget what the, the quote is, but it's essentially something about, you know, the man that, that plants the seeds, for a tree that he knows he won't be be able to enjoy the shade. Uh, I know I butchered that. Um, but like, we should be doing it for us and our patients, but also so much so that it, be- it becomes the norm moving forward. So my yeah. six-year-old daughter knows that, you know, she can, if, if something like this happens, she can be safe, you know, and not have to worry about, well, you know, just tell us she had a tummy ache. I was going to ask, uh, did you want me to tell them about the DOA transport? Policy? Oh yes! Oh, I can't believe I forgot about that. Please tell me about that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I feel like it's something funny and positive to close on. Um, so, at the agency I, I used to work for, um, when someone that is well, well, anybody, if anyone in the boundaries of Hamilton County dies, natural death gunshot wound doesn't matter and they you know let's say let's use a random example guy gi bleed at home lives by himself dies neighbor hasn't seen in a while comes over knocks on the door doors open walks in finds him dead right calls ems ems goes out there to pronounce this guy in this example is clearly dead right so typically the forensics center will come and do kind of an examination or a investigation there at the scene. And in this example, let's say he doesn't have a primary care doctor or whatever, and they can't get in touch with family. So there's no one immediately to make funeral arrangements that they don't just 
like, okay, the investigation's done. Let's get this guy over to the forensic center. No, a call generates from dispatch. They dispatch an ALS unit, non-emergency, to this place where they, two paramedics or paramedic EMT, whatever, will bag the guy, load him up on the stretcher, put him in the back of the truck, and transport this patient to the forensic center. There could be 10 calls on the board and five trucks available for the entire length and width of the county. But the vast majority of the time, if that call comes out, uh, there's going to be 11 trucks on the board, and one of them is going to be a DOA transport. That generates a call number, generates a report, albeit a very short report, uh, like two sentences. Yeah. Josh's There's no ME transport. I don't. I, that, that's, no. Yeah. It's, what? No. No. They don't. They don't have a van. They don't. I mean, they've got take-home cars. They, you know, they they've got really expensive or expensive camera equipment. They've got all the fun tools, except apparently a van with literally like a funeral home stretcher. That that's crazy. You know, I've <laughs> been fortunate enough to uh, work or volunteer in a couple of different areas of the United States. Uh, some of them pretty rural uh and out there that's never <laughs> been the case uh i mean in texas uh technically can't pronounce as a emt or as a paramedic but you're not the one taking the body to the morgue or to the medical examiner's office mm-hmm. same thing in uh southwestern virginia that's not happening have i put a body in a body bag to get him out of a, a truck yes i didn't transport the body though yep uh, uh, oh. That's like a whole like another biohazard thing. Like, what if they're in oh. like a severe state of decomp? You still have to do it. Yep, I'll give you a good example. I told you about this on the phone. Actually, we had so I use that GI bleed random example because it actually happened. Okay, this guy uh, lived by himself. Uh, had had a massive GI bleed. Been dead. You know. Anyway, we get called there, and at the at the time I was working overtime shifts with my now girlfriend um and we weren't dating at the time we we get this call and he lives kind of up some really narrow wooden steps uh and you know the wooden steps are not in great condition you know very narrow sharp turn going into the living room and it's just gross i mean we all just have blades are just gross so we get him in the bag and all this and we're going we've got him secured to a back where we're going down the steps i'm at the head on the, you know, at the head, she's at the feet. So she's going backwards and, you know, and something we had, they had really shitty body bags, like not great quality. So one of the seams broke and dead person juice got like on her, you know, and she's carrying it like waist level. Right. And it permeated. And the supervisor that day, when I, when she called to say, hey, when we drop this body off at the forensic center, can we have, can we go out of service just for a little bit so I can go shower and change uniforms? They had the audacity to say, no, we're too busy. You need to immediately get back in service. No. I shit you not. I, she might be sitting in the living room if you want verification. I had to call <laughs> the shift supervisor and say, I'm not asking. We are going out of service. You can fire me if you want. Like, this is biohazardous dead person juice we're getting her 
into a new uniform and, and, a, and a shower in a new uniform. Like it's that's what's happening. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, that is an amazing uh, note to end this program on. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, sixteen years still doesn't make it still surprises <laughs> me. Um, I I'm super glad. <laughs> For the place and agency I work for right now. <laughs> um, Again, people wow. around here complain a lot, and sometimes rightfully so. But I've never heard of anything like that happening around here. I don't know if you guys yep. have, but usually, nope. yeah. Nope. Uh, that's uh, even for Ken, who lives in a not lives, sorry, works in a unique department and region. That's definitely not on your on your slate. Nope. <laughs> Seen a lot of DOAs, but never picked one up, put one in a bag, and got the juice on me. <laughs> okay. That, what wow. A, what, what, what a way to end it. You want me, want me to take it out, Moose? Yeah. I, I don't <laughs> I even don't know what to say after this. <laughs> hey, uh, so, well. so, John, don't disconnect. We're just going to hit or stop record, but we'll, uh, okay. we'll, we'll finish up chatting with you after we stop recording. Sure. Uh, so uh well everybody thanks for listening uh john thanks for coming on sharing your story the discussion that came from it was great uh we love talking about mental health and how we can change our stigma our look on it how we can fix things how we make it better so thanks again for bringing that to us uh bringing that story and being here with us tonight uh for everyone wherever you're listening watching now because this will be in video um good morning good night good evening whatever it is be safe and uh make oh whoops make sure you like and follow (laughs) everything on social media it's our first time it's our first time apparently yeah okay see ya see ya all right let me stop recording